The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. So our church actually is birthed out of McDermott Avenue Baptist, and I know, Dave, that you weren't a part of those years yet. You started at Grant, but I was wondering that in your journey with our church, especially uh, having had that season at Grant Park Baptist, were there some stories that you heard that just kind of reflected God's faithfulness from that transitional thought life from McDermott saying, we need to birth the church elsewhere? That's true, Doug. I wasn't part of McDermott. Uh, uh, Grant Park was actually a church plant from McDermott in 1961, and Shirley and I started attending Grant Park in 1973. You can do the math. We've been around there for quite a while, and uh, the thing that really caught us when we went over to Grant Park and started attending there was that the family of believers there were so close together and such a family of God. They were very strong in what they believed and why they were doing it. And that's part of why they became the first people at Grant Park. Um, We're sitting here right now getting ready to move into a new building. But can you imagine not only moving into a new building, but also going through the process of having to rebuild your church completely? That basically means uh, finding leadership for all the different positions in the church, building your structure, uh, building all the documentations to become incorporated as a church. Uh, Everything from the ground floor up has to start new in that church. Oftentimes it also means that you're leaving all the friends and family, although uh, we did discover in this particular church that that wasn't quite true because uh, as we got in there and started to attend, Uh, we found out that 80% of that church was made up of one of four families. And it took me literally years to figure out who all the brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, cousins, etc. were in that church. And I was forever, you know, you did know that he was, you know, brother to her? No. So it was a family in a way within the church, but it was also a very strong family of God. And they were part of that aspect of, why they all drew together. And remember, a lot of those people were the same people that moved us over here. Uh, They were continuing that process of of growing in what they were doing. Um, And part of that, too, is the fact that uh, although a lot of those families come over here, uh, one in particular that you will know, Irma Kelm, who still attends our church here today, was one of the charter members of Grant Park Baptist Church when it was formed in 1961. And Eric and Trudy Pastor were very close behind her. So we still have remnants of those people here in our church today. And uh, the first Sunday that we were in there, we had a very hard time escaping that church. Uh, We went in there. We were church shopping at that particular point in time. We had just moved back to Winnipeg from Regina. And uh, we had a terrible time getting out the back of the sanctuary, down the stairs, across the foyer, and out the door. Every time we took a step, somebody else stepped in front of us and wanted to get to know us and say hi. And one of the little stories, well, the following Wednesday, the doorbell rang, we opened the door, and there was Eric Patzer and Mel Bergstresser saying, hi. We wanted to stop by and say, hi. You got any questions about our church? We don't want to take a bunch of your time or whatnot, but uh, we just wanted to make sure that you felt welcome in our church. So, hi. See ya. And off they went. But it made a big impression on us. They basically took their time to come out and to visit with us. So then there was the decision to say, okay, from Grant Park, we now want to move to this current place, uh, Skirfield Boulevard. And uh, I know there must have been some times of uncertainty. How did God show his faithfulness during that season of transition? Well, there were a number of things. Uh, 
when Grant Park was built, it was actually built as just a Sunday school wing, mm -hmm. and part of the sanctuary was, was built into that. But the intention was to build the actual sanctuary later on. Um, not a terrible lot different than the way we've been going along here as well. As we got into that process of, of looking at that, all of a sudden uh, we had two issues. One was that we were having a hard time reaching out to the community. Uh, we sort of put it down as we could not reach the community. We were wrong in that, and I'll explain a little bit of that later on. But uh, the other part was the fact that all of a sudden we had a Jewish congregation that came and uh, wanted to buy our building. And they offered us a pretty good price for it. So we figured between those two issues, we would actually decide to move and come over. And uh, this was the part of the land that uh, we looked at uh, with regards to building again. Yeah, no, sorry, there was there was really not much out here at that time. This was like pretty much open field, yeah. if you can imagine that. It was a thriving, growing community. But as we went through that process, of course, there were struggles. There were some people that struggled with the cost of a new building, as we have just gone through. There were some that actually struggled with the aspect of, I don't want to leave this building. They were attached to the building itself. But one of the biggest uh, struggles that we had was the fact that if we offered or accepted the offer to buy our building, we had no place to worship. And uh, it just so happened that as things moved forward, we discovered that there was a Seventh-day Adventist church over on Cathcart that was quite willing to let us use their church on Sunday after, on Sundays for our service. Seventh-day Adventists uh, worship their Sabbath on the Saturday. So to them, letting us use the Sunday was okay. But what was really interesting is that the reason that they were quite receptive to us using their church on Sunday was the fact that when they were building their church, another church had allowed them to use their church on Saturdays. God was already preparing the way for us in terms of where we were going and how we were going to get there. So there were a number of struggles. Some of it was the measure of our faith, as I, I commented about reaching the community and things like that. And as we looked to move over here and whatnot, and we built a plan, if you sort of look around you, can you imagine right from both sides across to the center whatnot, a big mezzanine up there with lots of chairs in it, and then classrooms in behind that? That was the original plan. And as we fought with the aspect of moving and the cost, we decided that we couldn't afford to do that at that particular point in time, that we would cut that back and save some money on that. But we also cut back the size of the steel that supported that. The result of that being is that even when we got to the point where we might want to add that mezzanine, we could no longer do it because we didn't have the steel in this building to support it. So those were some of the issues that we, we looked at. Uh, we sort of did things like that that sort of stopped us. And maybe we'd be looking at a different way of doing things today if we had you know, accepted the challenge of, of moving that forward. And I'm glad we've done that with regards to our new church. But notwithstanding that, God built us anyways. So now we're right in the midst of our transition to 2405. I was just wondering if you could just refresh our memories a little bit about God's faithfulness, how, first of all, we were able to acquire that property, and also some of the faithfulness about how God has allowed us to connect with this community that we live in White Ridge. It's been very interesting because uh, one thing you should know is that when we moved over here, we were a congregation of about 100 to 110 people. Not very many for what we built here, what we've done. And if you look around right now, we've got two services going. Look at all the people that we've got in here. And I expect that to happen when we move over to our new building as well. 
God started to challenge us about 15 years ago. That's only 15 years after we moved in here. And the challenge was basically how we were going to grow, how we were going to increase our ministry and do the things that we needed to do. And as a, a board and leadership, we looked at that issue and we realized that if we were going to do something somewhere else, the first thing we needed was a fairly sizable plot of land. So we started looking within the White Ridge area here because uh, we had already started to build our presence here. And we came up with over 16 plots of land owned by 16 different individuals or companies. You can imagine the challenge of trying to pull all that together because even if one chooses not to sell to you, it sort of really restricts what you can do on that property. Ralph Dyke, who was our moderator at that point in time, one day was wandering through the wilderness of those plots of land, being somewhat frustrated based on trying to get all this to come together or whatnot. And as he stopped and stood there and he looked across McGilvery at the Lafarge property, all of a sudden, some people would say it was a whim. I believe it was God's urging. He walked across the street to Lafarge and walked into their office and said, by any chance is the general manager in? Now, it was very unusual for the general manager to be in because he was always on the road. But he was in that day, and he actually had some time to talk to Ralph. So Ralph sat down with Ken and sat there, and he said, by any chance, are you guys considering selling some of your property? And Ken was very surprised, and he said, who told you that? And Ralph said, you just did. So that started the process. So did Ralph start negotiating right away? No. He started to build a relationship with Ken Ross. And that relationship blossomed. And we started having a very good relationship with not only Fort Lafarge, but I don't know if you're aware of it, but the employees of Lafarge Cement were the ones that started Fort White Alive. And they were very connected. And there was nothing that was going to happen unless Fort White Alive also agreed to what was going on. So we went into a three-way negotiation. And we basically ended up agreeing to buy 14 acres of land. And the price that Lafarge gave us was $15,000 per acre. And that was well below what the property was worth at that point in time. Not only that, but uh, as we continued that process, Lafarge discovered that there were a number of kiln bricks from their big kilns that were contaminated and on, on the property, so they cleaned all that up. And then as we finalized the deal and whatnot, we were received an ugly surprise from the city of Winnipeg when they said, uh, you can't transfer the name of the property until you pay a development fee, and that development fee was in the amount of $168,000. And Lafarge stepped forward and said, we'll pay $75,000 of that. That's why I have always said that God gave us this land. And it's also why I was so firm in saying, we need to move, we need to build over there. So there's been many things that have happened. And uh, we came over here, and I, I mentioned earlier, we couldn't reach the community. We couldn't reach the community, but God could. And shortly after we got here in the 90s, um, Fort White, as Doug mentioned, was a very thriving, growing community. Also had a very, very strong community group. And one of the things that they did is they decided to hold a festival every September. And all it was for was to bring all of the people of the community together so you got to know each other. 
And uh, so we figured, well, September's the start of our church year, so why don't we see if we can join in the festival? So we went over and asked if we could become part of that. Now, I won't say that we were warmly welcomed, but they allowed us to come and join it, and they said, yeah, sure, uh, you can put your tent over there at the edge of what we're doing in here. So we did that, and we started working with them, and we held our tent, and we had games for the kids and all kinds of other stuff with lots of prizes, not just for the ones that won, but for everybody. And guess what? Our tent was the busiest of all the tents that were around there. And over the next number of years, we didn't move into the center. All the other tents moved around the White Ridge tent. Just a, a quick interjection. We, we sold tickets to the children to play games, and it was as a fundraiser. Our tent raised the most money out of everything in the festival that year. And then as we got going on that, we decided to take another step, and that was basically on Friday evenings. Our tent was already up and everything. So we decided that what we would do is we would take – uh, extend an invitation to all of the people that were volunteering at the community tents the next day and invite them in for a barbecue and then to have some entertainment for them afterwards. It was just our way of saying thanks to the volunteers within the community. We continued that for a number of years until circumstances changed and whatnot, but we've also done a number of other things. Uh, we sp uh, sponsored or hosted a Halloween party on Halloween for the community, not just for our own kids to give them an alternative to walking around to the different houses. Um, we basically uh, got involved with Love Winnipeg, uh, sent gift baskets out to the police, fire, ambulance, et cetera, other things. And one of the big things, as you've noticed over the years in the media, that um, they've been pushing and pushing and pushing to get churches and prayer out of schools. Uh, we did something entirely different. I can't take any credit for this, but this guy can. He got into the schools. He got into the schools where he was in there, working with some of the teachers, working with some of the students and whatnot. And this has now been followed up by Pastor Kevin Schuler, who is still involved today in the schools and in there. This is exactly backwards to what's been going on in many of our schools and education facilities today. And... As we continue to, to do all of those things, we got to the point where the schools were coming to us. They were coming to us to ask to use our building. But they even came to us through some of the parents, uh, our parents in our schools. Uh, and that's how the before and after school program got started in here. We have changed. Um, we had issues with regards to some of the stuff that went on or whatnot. But we went from that process of being unable to reach our community to being part of our community and to be very involved. Now, as Doug mentioned earlier, these cards have been distributed. You know, we are here. We certainly are. We're in this building. In a couple of weeks' time, we'll be in a different building. But beyond this, we are here as a presence within this community, and we continue to be involved and to grow, which involves all of you in there as well. It's not just us as a church. But that's what we have accomplished as we've moved from McDermott Avenue to Grant Park to White Ridge over to McGillville. We are a part of this community. Well, thanks for sharing with us, with us Dave. And before Terry comes up, why don't we just uh, pray and uh, thank God for what he's been doing. 
Uh, Father, as we reflect over the history of our church family from McDermott to Grant to here and, and now, Lord, not uh, having quite yet entered into McGilvery, Lord, but as we move there, we know that, that you will continue writing a story to glorify yourself, to, to mature us and to show love to the surrounding community. So, Lord, we just pray that you give us wisdom to never allow fear to stop us from moving where you say we should move, that we always move in faith of you. And also, Lord, that you give us wisdom not to be foolish in things we do, but, Lord, that everything we do reflects your wisdom, your character, the just the, the holy, loving God that you are. We pray, Lord, that you will continue or that we will continue to recognize your faithfulness and to respond to you in a way that is life-giving to us and a source of um, direction and encouragement for our surrounding community. We, we pray that through our lives, Lord, they will come to know you and uh, be uh, thankful for who you are. And so, Lord, thank you for the history that we have with you together, and we look forward to the future. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks so much, Dave and Doug. Like Dave emphasized at the end there, we are wanting to be a church not just in the community, but for the community. And uh, hallelujah for the different ways that he has directed us. This past Wednesday, we were, some of us were at the prayer time in the boardroom, come to the quiet. And um, uh, in the middle of the prayer time, I had this picture of a furnace room that we were like the furnace room. And uh, just like in all of our homes and in this building, the furnace room um, affects what happens in every other room. <laughs> and the thing is about, about it is that what's going on in our ministries, what's going on in our church is going to happen whether we pray or not. We're going to be offering ministry in different capacities, whether we pray or not. It's going, to, it's going to all happen. But when prayer is foundational and supportive of everything that's going on, it changes the climate of every other room and everything that's happening. And I felt convicted of that, not just on a, a collective level, but on a very personal level. And uh, one of the hazards of being a pastor is that I sort of tend to start thinking of the story of us and not enough about the story of me. I start to think about us more than I think about me, and that sounds like a very unselfish thing to do, but actually it's, uh, it's dangerous because if I'm so concerned that I'm reading books for, for, for us and I'm preparing sermons for us and I'm praying for us and I'm doing everything because of this portfolio of pastor instead of this heart that is stoked in the furnace of intimacy with Jesus, then I am not going to be for us whatever I need to be, and you can't be either if that's your reference point, the externals. And uh, my fear, of course, <clears throat> as we move into a different and bigger ministry is that we get busy, yes, but that we, in the process, begin identifying ourselves more by what we're doing instead of who we are as God's people, and that the furnace of prayer and intimacy with Jesus has to be stoked. And because the, the most important thing that you and I bring to this church family is you and I. And, and if the you and I is not in the presence of Jesus, 
outside of even the time we spend together in the presence of Jesus, then we, we will not have the climate control by the Holy Spirit that we want. Anyway, I share that with you. I was debating whether I should, but um, I want to tell you a story this morning <clears throat> as I begin. It's a, it's a true story. It's about a, a woman and a man named Carol and John. John and Carol were members of First Baptist Church in Thunder Bay many years before I was there as the pastor. And they were faithful. They loved the Lord. And uh, John got cancer. And uh, one, one, once he had the chemo and the radiation and all that went on, at one point in time, the doctors came to John and Carol and said, there's nothing more we can do. And they sent him home. And uh, a few days or weeks, I can't remember, after he had been home, he was by himself in the house and he was walking down the hallway of his own home and he just felt this incredible warmth go from head to toes, just right down him like a washing. And he knew instantly that God had healed him of his cancer. And so, sure enough, uh, weeks later, or days later, whenever he went back to the doctor, they found no trace of cancer in John's body. Now, what they did not know was that weeks earlier to that event, Carol and John had called the pastor and the deacons of the church, asked them to come and anoint him and pray over him, just like James chapter 5 teaches us. And they did that, and, and uh, John and Carol attributed that healing to that incredible mercy of God in answer to that prayer. So now I want you to fast forward 15 years. 15 is a common number this morning. 15 years forward, I want you to fast forward. I am now the pastor at First Baptist Church in Thunder Bay, and John and Carol are very active in the church, and John gets cancer again. It comes back. And I, on a weekly basis, would visit seniors' residences and homes and th- with, with Carol, who was a deaconess. And it was just bothering me that they had not asked us to come and pray over John this time with cancer. Finally, I, I mustered up the courage to say to Carol one day, Carol, I know you believe in prayer. I know you've experienced this healing in John's life in the past. Why don't you ask us to come and anoint and pray over John again? And to this day, I will, I cannot forget her quick and easy response. And for a young pastor, I must say, um, I was not ready for the answer. She said, because we both feel that it's John's time. I had never encountered such a settled discernment, such a peaceful resignation to the will of God. I had never found that in my ministry up to that time. And a few months later, I officiated at John's funeral, a grievous but joyful event of a homecoming of someone that loved Jesus. I want to ask you, has God ever told you to stop praying about something? Has God ever communicated to you that I've given you my answer and I don't want you asking me about it anymore? 
Has God ever said to you that this is the experience I have designed and I want you to trust me? Because he's made known his will. Now, there's many areas that God will never say that in. God will never say to you, stop praying for that unsaved loved one because, no, he's not going to do that. Doug, Doug shared last week with us about, you know, when, when you keep on asking forgiveness, it must wear God out because he said in his word, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, he'll forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So you don't need to go back over and over again, oh yeah, forgive me again, oh later in the day, forgive me, oh, you know, God just says, don't stop praying about that. I forgave you. Now you can start thanking me for the forgiveness and move on. You know, the scriptures tell us of various times in the scriptures when God said to various people, stop praying. Do you remember Joshua? And um, he was on his face before the Lord. And God said, get off your face. Stop praying. There's sin in the camp. Go deal with it. Do you remember Paul the apostle? He, he, he had this thorn in his flesh. And he prayed three times, God, take it away, take it away, take it away. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul stopped praying. Or think of David. When David had it on his heart, he wanted to build the temple for God. He said, here am I living in this wonderful palace. I'm going to build God a temple. And God said, are you the one to build the temple? God sent Nathan the prophet and he said to him, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build your house. Your son Solomon is going to build the temple. David stopped praying. Or think about Jesus in Gethsemane when he was praying so intensely that his sweat became blood. And Jesus prayed three times. If it is possible, oh God, please, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. And the third time he came back to his disciples and he had his answer. He said, arise, let's go. My betrayer comes. And so there are times when we're to stop praying. And I want to talk about one more time in Scripture where that happened, and that's with the life of Moses. And if you want to have your Bibles ready in the book of Numbers and in the book of Deuteronomy, we're going to refer to a few passages of Scripture. But I want to just recite a little bit the, book, uh, the, the life of Moses before we jump in. Remember, remember Moses, he was the man that was rescued from the Nile River. Remember that? The Hebrews were being killed as they had their babies. The babies were being killed and, and um, Moses' mom takes that little baby Moses and down to the Nile, puts him in a wicker basket with, coated with tar and floats him there among the reeds. And later on that day, the very daughter of the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, is down there bathing with her maidservants, and they see, they see this little wicker basket and a Hebrew baby. And God, in his wonderful plan, just worked it out that the Hebrew slave girl that was present went and got Moses' mother to nurse Moses in the court of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh grows up, and for the first 40 years of his life, he is the prince of Egypt. He is led and raised and educated in, in Egyptian ways in the court. 
And then at the age of 40, he has this incredible crisis in his life. And he, he's not sure who he is anymore because somebody has told him that he indeed is a Hebrew, that slave people that are being slowly persecuted to death. And one day he sees an Egyptian slave master beating and, and killing a, a Hebrew slave, and he, he rises up and kills the, the Egyptian. The word gets out, and he starts to become afraid. He runs off into the wilderness of Midian. And in that next 40 years of, jo of Moses' life, he's a shepherd. And he's not sure. He's had an identity crisis. Am I an Egyptian? Am I a Hebrew? What is my calling? God, who am I? And God meets him in a burning bush. Remember that story? And he says, take off your sandals. Come closer. And God sends him out to be going back to Egypt and to lead his people out of slavery and into the promised land. Somebody said that Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking that he was a somebody, the next 40 years of his life thinking that he was a nobody, and the final 40 years of his life believing that God can use anybody. And so Moses then leads God's people out of, out of Egypt. Thousands of people, men, women, children, possessions, livestock. And you know the story how they, they could have been into the promised land so quickly, but they sent spies in, and instead of believing the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, they believed the ten spies, and they were punished for that, and all of them that were... Un over 20 years of age, would not be allowed to enter the promised land. But Moses still faithfully, throughout those 38 plus years, led them, led them. God was faithful. And we came, they come to a point, just months before entering the promised land, they come to a point, and it's found in Numbers chapter 20, and it's a time of testing that they get to. And in Numbers chapter 20, the people of Israel are in what's called the Desert of Zin, and it's a hard place. God has been providing manna in the morning, quail sometimes, water for them, protection from their enemies and so on, guidance through the wilderness. God has been faithful all throughout those years in the wilderness, but now they come to a time of testing, and it's at a place called Meribah, which means quarreling. It was named after this event. And in that place, they don't have any more water. In fact, in chapter 20 and verse 1, it seems like Moses' sister Miriam dies because of this drought. And the Israelites are suffering, and they begin to grumble and complain against Moses, and they say to him things like, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? It would have been better if we'd have just stayed in Egypt. At least there we had leeks and onions and this and that and so on. Remember the good old days? One thing I've learned about the good old days is that they probably weren't as good as people remember. And the other thing I learned about the good old days is that people only talk about them when the present days are hard, right? They don't like something going on. Well, in the case of Israel, Egypt was no good old days. They were slaves. Their babies were being killed. They were thinning the herd of Hebrews by the time God raised up a deliverer. 
And in Numbers chapter 20 and verse 6, Moses and Aaron, they don't know what to do. They go into the tent of meeting. That's where they met with God. And it says they fell on their faces before God. And it says that the glory of God filled the tent of meeting. And God met with Moses and he told him what he's going to do. So Moses listens and it says in this scripture that he said, Take the staff I have given you, assemble the congregation ahead of the rock, And tell the rock, before their very eyes, tell the rock, yield your water. Give up your water, O rock. That's what God told Moses to do. Now, I want you to, this is a really important point of this sermon here. This is is where now Moses goes out from the presence of the Lord and he translates God's message to Israel. He translates it. Now, if you've been involved in any kind of translation work, you know it's a very interesting thing to do because there's two parts to translation. There's what is being said and how it's being said. (laughs) Have you ever been in a situation where you... That's one of the reasons why email is so terrible, isn't it? I see what you're saying, but why are you using capital letters? (laughs) What? You know, some people get get carried away there. They... How are you doing? <laughs> you know? And so, translation. Here's, here's I got to tell this story. When I was doing IBK and Phoebe's wedding, that was a great, great moment there. And Phoebe's dad came from China, you know, and he, he gets up to thank the guests. And man, I'm not, I don't know anything about Chinese culture and language. And he gets up there and he's, he's looking like he's in Tiananmen Square with the army and He's just kind of belting it out. And then Phoebe's over here, and she's translating, and she's saying, my dad would like to say thank you for coming to... (laughs) And then you go back to him, and he's going... (laughs) And you just go back. Translation can be very dangerous, can't it, you know? I asked permission for this story. So here's Moses, and he's translating for God. So what does he say? Moses says in verse 10, translated message. Here he is, standing before the rock, before the assembled Israelites. He says, hear now, you rebels. I'm putting some tone on that. Shall we, Aaron and I, bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand, and he struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Whoa. Ouch. Before the end of that chapter, Aaron is dead. Weeks later. And before six months have passed, Moses is dead. I know you're responding like I do. You know, it seems kind of harsh. What was Moses doing for that next six months? He was writing the book of Deuteronomy. That's what's in your Bible, Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy means second law. 
Now, God had already given the law to Moses, and Moses had given it to Israel. We read about it in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. But now God says, I'm going to give it to you again. You're going to repeat the law. You're going to remind them. You're going to warn them. You're going to tell stories. And here's the second law, Deuteronomy. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we see in chapter 3, chapter 3, verse 23, where Moses recounts the story of Meribah quarreling, the testing in the wilderness. And he says, he says to him, be careful, Israel. Don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. They even got a name for it. It's now called the rebellion. Every Israelite knew what you were referring to if you said the rebellion. Oh yeah, that was what happened at Meribah in the desert of Zin. Don't do that. And so God speaks through Moses once again, the second time the law has been communicated, and he shares the story of this discipline. Chapter 3, verse 23, here's what he says. Talking about Meribah, he says, I pleaded with the Lord at that time. Can you hear it? I pleaded with the Lord. Oh God, please, please let me enter the promised land. This has been my whole life's purpose. God, please, I brought them out. I want to bring them in. And here's, this, is, this, is, this, is, this is what knocked me off my chair this week. Verse 26, Deuteronomy 3. But the Lord was angry with me because of you, and he would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, here it is, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Done. He said to Moses, don't you ever pray about this again. Wow. And so God takes Moses up a mountain, and he gets up on the top of it, and he looks across, and he can see the promised land, but he's not allowed to enter it. Do you know, that's not the way Moses decided he would live his life. That's not the way Moses envisioned himself ending his days. You might, you might have an experience in your life where you've gone through a season of life and you can look back and you say, that's not the way I envisioned living my life. That's not what I had planned. And God had other plans. So why is it that Moses is retelling the story of Meribah? Well, I think it's because he wants to instruct Israel. He wants to warn Israel. He wants to remind Israel, not just of the law, but of the incredible faithfulness of God, but also the severity of God. He's no one to be messed with. And at the end of Deuteronomy, in chapter 32, verse 7, our, our text for today, really, he says in the middle of his song of Moses, giving his final blessing before he dies, he says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you your elders and they will tell you. He's telling them, tell the stories. And David says it in Psalm 143. I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you've done. I ponder the work of your hands. The purpose of remembering, you see, is not to pat ourselves on the back. The purpose of remembering is not to get sentimental about the days we've gone through in this church family and in this building. The purpose of, rem of remembering is to be instructional, to point to God, to remind ourselves of deep lessons of faith, to recognize the faithfulness of our God. 
So that when we come to the desert of Zin in our experience and we face a Meribah, instead of quarreling and complaining against God, we'll say, God, you've been faithful in the past and we're going to thank you and somehow, God, with your grace, we're going to go through this. Now, probably you haven't been counting this morning, but you've heard a lot of stories already this morning, haven't you? Dave and Doug were sharing some stories with you. I shared a story about the furnace and the come to the quiet prayer time this past week. I shared a story about these, these, this couple in, in, in Thunder Bay, John and Carol. I, I shared their story. I shared the story of Joshua. I shared the story of Paul. I shared the story of David. I shared the story of Jesus in Gethsemane. And now I've shared the story of Moses and how his final days unfolded. There's something incredible about story, isn't it? Is it? It's amazing that we identify with story. That story, you haven't been thinking about it, but truth has been entering your heart. Maybe not even so much in your mind, but it's been entering your heart because of the story. It carries the freight of meaningful lessons and truth that you would maybe not otherwise think much of. If I just stood up here and said, oh, by the way, God is faithful, end of sermon. You see, we live storied lives, don't we? When you get up in the morning, what did you dream? You dreamt story. When you get to the supper table after the day, what do you do? You share story. We live storied lives. And we either are are in the story or we hear the story and something happens that makes us identify with the story. Fred Craddock tells this, the storyteller is not speaking to the people, he's speaking for the people. And the mark of a good story is when it's over, people say, you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about, isn't that true? That's what we do. Now you're stirring the pot. Now you're tapping not more in, but calling more out. Good storytelling speaks for the congregation and evokes their own stories. Think about a grandpa. One day, a little boy goes to his grandpa with an apple. And he says to grandpa, Grandpa, Mama doesn't want me to eat this apple without getting it peeled first. Will you peel it for me? And so the grandpa gets his pocket knife out of his pocket, you know, the, the one, the same one that he uses to pick his teeth and <laughs> clean his nails. And he opens up the blade, wipes it off on his britches, starts to peel the apple. And as the little boy is waiting there, he's just salivating, waiting for this apple. The juice is in his mouth, you know, and the curl of the apple just keeps on going down closer and closer to his face, you know. He's peeling the apple, and he's, he's talking the whole time. Grandfather's just chatting. He's saying, you know, I once peeled 35 apples in a row for your grandmother when she made the pies. He's chatting, he's talking, and the boy's just waiting for this apple. His stomach is telling him, didn't you promise me an apple? You know? And and as he's going, finally he finishes, and the the peel drops on the floor, and the boy goes to lunge for the apple, but the grandfather says, oh, not yet. we got to get the the seeds out. We don't want you choking on a seed. And he cuts it up. Well, after this long process, finally 
the boy grabs the apple and chomps on it and says, thank you, Grandpa. Thank you, Grandpa. Now, I want you to compare that story with walking up to a machine at a cafeteria, putting in a quarter, pulling a lever, grabbing an apple, and eating it on the way to something when the stomach is saying, I didn't even ask for an apple. You see, what's, what's going on is that, that somehow story, just like that apple peeling prepared the stomach, story somehow prepares people to receive the truth, to receive some lesson. It's packaged. It carries the freight. It gets past the defenses. Think of how many times we see that in Scripture. You remember when David sinned with Bathsheba and God sends Nathan the prophet and he tells him a story. Tell them a story about this poor farmer that has one little sheep and this big rich man that has a whole bunch of sheep and the rich man gets some company and instead of taking one of his sheep, he takes this poor little lamb from this one little farmer and he kills him and then and David's going, yee, that's wrong, that's not true, that's not right, you shouldn't do that. And then all of a sudden Nathan just says, you're the man. You got the whole kingdom and you've taken that man's wife. Busted. David was convicted through that story. Or think about Jesus in the parables, how many times that, that one lawyer that comes to him, he's trying to justify himself. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbor? He's trying to, he's trying to justify himself, not helping other people unlike him. But the, at the end of the story of the Good Samaritan, and, and Jesus asks the question, and, and who, who is the neighbor? And the man could not even pronounce the word Samaritan. He just said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. You see, stories get past our defenses. And they teach us things that we probably would reject. Leslie Newbegin says this, World history, as it is normally taught in schools, places us, the storytellers, at the center of the story, Civilization is defined by our contemporary achievements. We are the civilized people. History finds its clue in us. But history, as the Bible tells us, is radically different. It subverts this natural point of view. History, as the Bible tells it, is to be understood as the patient wrestling of God with a deluded and rebellious people Deluded and rebellious precisely because they insist on seeing themselves as the center of the story instead of God. You see, all the White Ridge Baptist Church stories that we could ever tell this month are all really God's stories. God's faithfulness, God's pursuing a people that often don't get it right. God is at the center and part of the point of what we're doing this whole month is reflecting well, finishing well, remembering well, so that we can be ready for the stories that we'll be making in this transition. I did research in Bolivia when I was there for my doctorate of ministry, and I, I did it all about the impacting power of story. And I went around and simply asked people to tell me their stories. It was fun. I asked people to tell me the stories that either they lived or that they heard. And over the course of those months, I heard all kinds of stories, but I heard one story 10 times to one compared to any other story. 
and it was the story of a massacre that took place in a little village in the province of North Potosi, Bolivia, in a place called Murkamaya. And in that little village, I spoke of it a couple of years ago in more detail, in that little village when they were installing a pastor in a little Baptist church, a mob of angry locals that were drunk gathered around that building, started by throwing stones, then they lit the place on fire, thatched roof, and eventually stoned eight people to death, one of them being a missionary with the mission that I served with when we were in Bolivia. His name was Norman Dabbs. Now, that story became a defining story for the Bolivian Baptist Union. I heard it 10 to 1 on any other story that I heard in Bolivia. And as I reflected on that story, I thought that there were three things that identified why a story impacts one person more than another. And the first reason that it impacts is because of the relationship with you, you have with either the storyteller or the people in the story. That's going to make you have, have that story more impact on you. I, I knew a, a, a man that was the rector of the seminary where I taught, where we taught. Um, Jaime Goitia was, was, was actually a teenager getting ready to go to seminary, and he missed the truck that was going to Merkamaya. He would have been among the ones that were killed. And the next morning, he, he was the one that decided, I'm going to seminary to be a pastor. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I, I knew a student, Rene Toribio, who was from Mercamaya, and his grandfather, I met him, his grandfather was in the house when the mob attacked. He escaped out the back, ran to the next village, Uncia, and told the police about it who came the next morning. I met Norman Dabb's seven-year-old daughter at the time of the massacre, who was now in her late 60s, and I met Amy Dempsey, and she came back to Bolivia for the first time, and she went to Murkamaya. She walked that dry creek bed, and she picked up some stones, and she thought, I wonder if this is one of the stones that killed my dad. And, and so I... So I this relationship with the storytellers and this relationship with some of the people in the story, it's going to rock the way that story will impact you and not, not even affect the person beside you. A second indicator is the fact that your experience of the story will make a difference. I visited Merkamaya various times. I saw the creek bed. I preached in Oruro at the church called the Risen Christ, where all eight bodies were taken and laid on the altar. Can you imagine eight bodies laid on the altar before they, they had the funeral procession to the cemetery? And I preached in that church on several time occasions. I went to the mausoleum that they had built, and I held the urns in my hands of the ashes of all eight people that were murdered. My experience of the story was enriched because of being in Bolivia. And then finally, my identification with the story. I served in the same mission as Norman Dabbs. I taught at the same seminary he did. And there are so many stories we're going to be talking about this, this month. And, and those are the reasons you'll have some impact you more than others. Maybe your relationship with some people who are the storytellers or in the story will will. will change the story's impact for you. Or maybe your experience of the stories will be different because of the faith community that you've been part of here. And if you've just been recently part of us, you, it may not be the same for you in this month of remembering.
Or maybe your identification with the story is such that if you have lost a loved one prematurely, it doesn't matter what other story about a lost one prematurely dying, you're going to identify with that. If you've had cancer, you're going to identify with anybody that shares a story about cancer. If you've had mental illness in your family, you're going to identify with someone who's got a story about mental illness and so on. And so as we go through this Someone said a good story is worth being told because it leads us right up to the edge of the future. And that's where we end, is that reminding ourselves this morning that we're story makers, not just storytellers. Right now, as we make history, in these coming months as we make history, what is a future generation going to say? What are the stories that they're going to tell? Will they be worth telling? Will they exalt Jesus Christ and magnify his name as people in future generations talk about the stories we're making right now? Will they be stories that humble us and, and recognize that we tried to not let our hearts get hard at, like it did at Merah, but we tried not to quarrel and grumble against the Lord. We tried to walk it out as faithfully as we could. Remember the days of old. Meditate on all that has been done. Ponder the work of your hands. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, even as I have been sharing some stories this morning, maybe it's provoked an imagination in all kinds of people here that, that it has to do with other stories that they've lived through or they were part of or they heard. And Lord, we, we believe that, that you're a storytelling God, that you have shaped history according to stories that are being passed on. And we pray that, Lord, you'll have your way, that we'll be faithful to reflect well upon our time in this building, that we will learn and draw out lessons that we need to have in our backpacks when we leave and go to the next building, and that they will, be, they will form who we are and whose we are as we seek to be your people, O oh God. We thank you for this time together. Would you pour out your blessing on each man and woman and child in this room? And Lord, would you bless them in their families? And would you show them the steps they are to walk out this coming week? Would you help them, Lord, with decisions that they need to make? as they make history with those decisions. Some of them are hard decisions before them. Some of them may be quite easy, but Lord, I pray right now that every person here right now will know that you walk with them. You lead them even as you led Israel in the wilderness. And we pray that we will not harden our hearts, but be soft before you. We ask it all for the glory of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you all. Go in peace.